Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemarautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discussed the 1997 film Eraserhead, directed by David Lynch, alongside a short David Lynch film called The Grandmother. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome back to another episode of Autism Through Cinema podcast. Um, today, we're going to be discussing uh, David Lynch's film, Eraserhead, his debut feature-length film, Eraserhead. But we're also going to be talking a little bit about one of his short films, a film called The Grandmother. Um, I'm joined today by, uh, well, my name is David Hartley, and I'm joined by Janet Harbord, uh, Alex Widdison, Georgia Bradburn, and John James Laidlaw. Um, and Georgia is going to uh, introduce our films today because uh, these were her um, selections. So uh, over to Georgia. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, so I, I I chose these films because I think a lot of people who know me uh, know that David Lynch is kind of like a special interest because it it he is kind of the reason I got into film and especially into like film criticism um, and film theory, um, especially as like an autistic person. There's something in Lynch's films that I can really, um, that I can really identify with. And I don't really know if it's really intentional on, on Lynch's part. Um, but, but yeah, I'll get more onto the technical parts in a moment. So the first film uh, I'll just touch upon is the grandmother because it was made first, and it was the first film that Lynch made um, with, in collaboration with the American Film Institute. He showed them his previous film, which is the Alphabet, and they gave him, I think, seven thousand dollars to make it. It's a thirty-minute uh, film combined live action and animation. It tells the story of a young boy living in uh, an abusive household, taunted by his parents and scolded for for wetting the bed and refusing to eat the food, the disgusting food that's given to him. And so uh, to comfort himself, he grows his own grandmother and finds solace in her. But after a while, he realises that not everything good lasts forever and the grandmother gets very sick and eventually... um, passes away and which causes all sorts of chaos and it's a very it's a very jarring film to watch I first saw it it was the first Lynch film I think I ever watched and I just started college and it was one of the films that I used as a reference for my first short film which was quite a surrealist sort of Lynch slash Argento type deal but one of the most influential things from it that I took was the sound design, uh, which with Eraserhead is created with Alan Splett, I think, from a group called Tractor. It's it's kind of a soundscape of foley and recorded sound effects that Lynch himself and the sound designer created. And it creates some kind of dissonance with the uh, with the action, which is something that to me is really effective because it, it takes it takes a lot of realism out of it and, and it's quite a jarring take on the reality. So seven years later, Lynch goes on to make a razorhead, which is, like David said, his first feature film. And it's about uh, an industrial worker called Henry Spencer, who discovers that his ex-girlfriend called Mary X is pregnant with uh, or has given birth to a like a half mutant alien child 
So he's forced to move in with her and the constant wailing and needs of the child forces Mary X to have to abandon Spencer with the child and he has to kind of learn to look after it uh, or um, tend to it. It starts to become very ill and screaming more and more. All sorts of surreal things happen. Um, There's a lady in a radiator who sings a song uh, on a stage in front of an empty audience. Spencer has an affair with the woman across the hall and then experiences all sorts of visions, including his head being decapitated, falling onto the street and then being brought to an eraser factory, hence the name of the film. And the film ends with this kind of culmination of anger where Spencer commits, essentially commits infanticide by cutting the swaddles on the child, which it turns out was holding its organs together. And the film ends in a kind of surreal way with the woman in the radiator sort of embracing him. Um, So it's a lot to uh, take in. They're both very overwhelming films with not, not very clear courses of action. And I can't remember exactly what Lynch said, but um, it was something to do with um, not having to make sense um, and not having to make make a film actually um, have a reason for certain things. If it makes an effect, then it's it's good enough. And another thing I should note is also Lynch started out as an artist, uh, as like a painter. And one of his key interests was making his paintings come to life. And I think, especially with these early films, these quite low-budget experimental body horror films, before going on to, you know, more studio films like, um, obviously, eventually Blue Velvet or even like Dune, there's something, an artistic painterly quality, especially the ones with the animation, which sort of, for me, encapsulate a potential for um, film and art to kind of become the same thing or to have the same goal to achieve the same thing so yeah um the grandmother especially is a very um important film for me because it was one of the ones that really spoke to me as someone with autism um not everyone likes it for obvious reasons um but yeah I think that's about it I'm interested to hear I'm really interested to hear what you all think about them um, this is the first uh, David Lynch film. These these are the first films I've seen by David Lynch. Actually, I haven't I haven't seen anything by him. It's kind of like a, um, a gap in my viewing. Um, I tried to watch um, Twin Peaks, but it was a bit too slow for me. I tried twice, um, but I didn't really I didn't really get what a Razorhead was about at first and I think now I've watched The Grandmother I understand it a bit more and I think I feel like I appreciated The Grandmother more than A Razorhead so I was kind of worried in A Razorhead that um, the horror was coming from disfigurement and difference yeah so I kind of felt it could potentially be a bit ableist in that way that the horror was coming from people being different, yeah. I mean, I've seen a few um, Lynch films in the past and, you know, for me it was a a sort of exhilarating experience when I was first at art school to see these totally weird films. Um, But I must admit, I've I've lost tolerance, particularly when I saw Inland Empire. I just thought he's truly capable of generating nonsense. So I guess I've... Yeah, I'm a little bit less sympathetic than I used to be. But, um, you know, Georgia, when you've recommended these films for us to discuss, obviously the sort of the theme of autism lays in the background of, you know, what what's the reason for us to be thinking about it in that, through that prism. So I sort of engaged in a bit of a thought exercise, you know, let's just see what it feels like if we... Uh, make assumptions about the protagonist of a razor head. Let's just assume he has uh, a form of neurological difference that um, informs the the worldview that sort of sympathizes with his perspective as the lead character. 
So through that prism, I sort of watched the film. And, you know, what becomes clear is that lots of other characters surrounding him, including uh, Mary's family, um, sort of act in a way that seems unpredictable and illogical, even irrational. Um, and there's quick shifts in behavior that don't seem to make any sense um, to the viewer. And so I wondered if uh, Henry is sort of, this, this film in Eraserhead is really Henry's sort of, sort of perceptions of the behavior of others not quite making sense or not quite being rendered rational. And that sort of manifests as a sort of total cinematic experience. So it started off as quite a, quite an interesting experience trying to sort of frame the film that way. But I must admit, I just, when the, the sort of um, congenitally disfigured baby is introduced, uh, the narrative stopped really working as a sort of allegory for difference. And it became this sort of brutal story of ableism and, and culminating in, um, in infanticide. And it's, it's not just that he sort of undoes the sutures and accidentally triggers the infant's death. He, he stabs it as well <laughs> with the scissors. And so there really is this sort of like horror of the difference in the narrative. And I just, I thought I'd forgotten the ending <laughs> and I was so, so disappointed that it was getting that dark and cruel, you know, it, it, and another aspect of it is it, is it really resonated with, um, what I'd heard my mother speak about when she um, gave birth to my brother who has Down syndrome in the late 70s before sort of testing was very uh, reliable. So she wasn't aware of his, um, his Down syndrome status before he was born. And sort of she discussed the sort of surprise and, and uh, difficulty she had coming to terms with that, with his sort of status. But, and so I think, you know, like um, for lots of parents with disabled children who um, uh, are sort of identified as disabled at birth, you know, there is a, a really difficult struggle, but it just seemed like Eraser had presented the worst possible outcomes and the worst sort of human behavior in that moment, you know, the mother sort of fleeing and the father killing the baby. It's just, it horrified me really. And I was a bit sad about it all. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with a lot of that. It, you know, it's hor it is horrifying and horrible. And you, I actually do, it has been a while since I've watched a razor head and I also forgot quite how horrible it, it gets um, towards the end. Um, however, I think I see it a little differently. I, I think I see, I don't so sure kind of bizarrely. I'm not so sure I quite see disfigurement in the, in the child. Um, creature thing I think because it's so surreal I think because it's so strange and it's kind of it's almost like I mean you referred to it Georgia as almost like a kind of alien creature which I sort of I do kind of associate it with it's got that sort of slightly um almost John Carpenter-esque kind of grotesqueness to it. And there's a lot of grotesqueness in this film. There's, this is a very grotesque film, and, and and Lynch is always working with the grotesque constantly throughout his career, and that's one of the things he goes to a, a lot. And I think it's that extremity, I think it's the grotesqueness of it that takes it away from me seeing it as a kind of necessarily a disfigured baby. I, I sort of just see it as a as a baby, as a kind of symbolic almost as of a baby and and it's the there's so much emphasis placed on the sound it makes and the screaming and the crying so i don't tend to sort of think of it as a as a disabled or disfigured i just seem to sort of think of it as a kind of uh, symbolic of a baby that's maybe a bit sick or a bit or a bit hot and 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 is crying a lot and and i think that I, I think that it's it's so surreal. It sort of takes it away from me, takes it away from that side of things for me. And I think the the thing that 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 leads me to say that is that when he is having his kind of dream or nightmare sequences later on, um, uh, there's a point where his head gets knocked off, and it gets sort of uh, the the kind of 
the baby head figure kind of grows in in his place and sort of appears. So his head gets sort of surreally knocked off while he's on a stage. And then this, the, the baby head sort of comes out of his own head. And then there's a, a little shot later on where um, he's talking to, or he's sort of interacting with the woman from across the hall who he has the, the affair with. And um, there's a kind of reverse shot between them and it, and it looks back at him. And again, he's got that little baby's head on his shoulders. So for me, I just sort of, sort of think of him, I feel like he associates himself with that creature and he associates himself as different and as other. And, um, and it's more about him not being able to fathom or being able to cope with the pressures of fatherhood and not really understanding how to fit that into the world that he lives in. Um, in a similar way that he doesn't, it seems to me that he doesn't really know quite how to fit himself into the world around him either. But then the world around him is also so stra- strange and surreal and everyone acts in a very strange and surreal way um, and a sort of discombobulating way. And I think when we look at it from the point of view of autism and if we consider him as an autistic figure potentially or a sort of neurodivergent figure, then yeah, I, I feel as if we're sort of seeing this seeing an exaggerated, grotesque, surreal, abstract version of a kind of industrial world. Um, And therefore, everything is up for grabs to be turned into a kind of surreal image. And I think that's probably why I don't necessarily fully see this this screaming, strange child, baby child, as a kind of representative of of a kind of... um, uh you know as a kind of disabled figure necessarily i don't know it's hard to explain really but i i think it's something to do with the extremity and the surreal the surrealness of it that that stops it necessarily from from being obviously that i think if that makes any sense yeah i'm think trying to think about how how i saw the baby and what, what trying to re- remember what kind of horror it was and i think for me it was about um the baby being premature, that the baby wasn't fully formed. And there's something about this film where there's lots of indeterminate matter. Um, there are lots of things that are sort of, we don't quite know what they are, but they, and we don't quite know where they belong, you know, like, like the worms and maggots and things. They're a bit like sperm. They're a bit like penises at times. They're a bit sort of like, it's, it's not quite clear what one thing is and it might shift, you know, one thing can flip from something in, into another thing in the films. Um, and it, it for me, this both of these films had quite a lot of body horror in them, you know, and it's and it had that side to, to maternity. I mean, it's interesting that it's a male character that we experienced this through, but it had a lot of the horror of, you know, like breastfeeding, breast sexual, but they're also, you know, giving milk. Um, that, that's potentially quite horrifying. Um, and similarly about, you know, all of our genitals, they sort of have this double function. Um, there's a lot of sort of like liquids. There are a lot of things that that seem to be referencing sex, but they're usually also connected to death and, and horror in these films. And, it, and that's the territory where it, that it took me to, that um, the, the question of what is it and why is it there? Um, and, and how can we know it is 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 where a razor head in particular seemed to seem to pull me in time and time again. And so the baby, I just, you know, I was just really not wanting him to take that swaddling off. I was just thinking, you know, that that baby can't can't sustain that. It's not it's not in it hasn't been grown enough yet. Um, and we see a lot of things, you know, he's attempting to grow things in the film, the sticks that are stuck in some mud. It seemed to me sort of, of that nature, you know, like how, how formed is something? Is it ready for the world? What happens to these things in the world? Um, yeah, so that's that's the kind of feeling that I had about it. And I mean, I mean, it's, it's disturbing. It's there in the surrealist tradition, but it it. it it seemed to be a very visceral thing that question that that Lynch gives us, and and I really like that about him that the that the, the the images he gives us we can feel, and and I think there's there sort of visually in the kind of tactile kind of cloying messy fluids and things that we get here, as well as the soundtrack we haven't really talked about yet. I'm not quite sure what what I think about the industrialism. I know there's some link 
from Lynch to that kind of German tradition of of uh, of industrial, um, I don't know, kind of harsh aesthetic, I suppose. Um, I, I don't know if anyone else knows more about about that. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there. Um, the one thing I I know about the whole theme of industrialising because it it crops up in a lot of Lynch's films, or and even especially Twin Peaks. I think because Lynch grew up in um, a di- lots of different places, but one of them was um, in uh, Philadelphia, uh, which was very much an industrial uh, city. And so he was kind of surrounded by that um, worker community. Um, and the idea of industrialization, pollution, uh, the promise of new technology and a new way of life, when in reality, I think what he reflects on is the the sort of horrors of the mundanity that already exists. I mean, Lynch grew up in a very um, suburban environment in uh, uh, Boise, Idaho, and um, it's like a very normal upbringing. But what I I observe across a lot of his films is the exposing of the of what's beneath the surface and that sort of gritty subconscious in a in a seemingly perfectly constructed family oriented suburban society because yes in a lot of his work there's the theme of kind of 50s suburban utopia and then that is sort of dissected and also just the, the tradition of family especially in these two films that we're looking at today the uh, the notion of family really is kind of torn apart and scrutinized especially the kind of the elements of procreation and birth and things like that like Janet said the kind of um grotesque view of of birth and a a woman's body especially from a, a male point of view that's something I definitely um observed especially this time around and Going back to the what people were saying about the child, I hadn't really ever framed it in that way as, you know, the child having like a deformity that is being ignored and abused. Um, but I think it's a really interesting take on it. Um, because, yes, essentially, this is about a father who's not ready to have a child. And then the child is a lot more than he can handle. And to deal with that, he... Um, kills it which is a very kind of violent grotesque and horrifying thing to to even comprehend but um the the way that I sort of saw it and I've I've digested it the last couple of times I've I've seen a razor head is more of um the character of Henry Henry as um we see it kind of through his lens through his perspective as sort of like an everyman everyday person you know works at a factory just presented as sort of normal ish um but everything in his eyes is so surreal and so deformed especially when when you go when he goes into mary's house and sees um her family which on a first viewing would seem like a very traditional 50s suburban household but then, you know, occasionally the characters will go into some sort of, sort of, uh, I don't want to, you know, misuse a word, but they have some kind of um, fit. And again, I, I hadn't really read that in terms of um, scrutinising difference, uh, like um, neurological difference, things like that. But to me, it was, it's in a similar way to the grandmother, it's seeing perceiving the world and perceiving the way that people interact with each other as subhuman. And an example I want to take from the grandmother about this is uh, towards the beginning. Um, when, so the the parents kind of breed essentially and give birth to the child and they're sort of um, crawling around the floor like dogs and barking. And the only sounds they really make are these kind of visceral barking sounds they say his name like they're they're barking it out and it's the sort of um perception of other people or the conventions of other people as animal-like or subhuman which is something that 
I don't necessarily um, relate to, but in a way, um, the scrutiny of gesturing and conversation and the behavioral mechanisms of other people can sometimes be sort of reduced to a, a primal reaction, if that makes any sense at all. Especially the eating scene in The Grandmother, that's one that I, as someone with autism and um, misophonia, which is sort of like a horrible reaction to the sounds of people eating and the sight of people eating, to see it performed in such an animalistic way really spoke to me. So going back to a razorhead, um, I saw it as kind of exposing of this this gritty underworld beneath the sheen of uh, societal perfection, uh, which is something that I definitely experienced growing up and sort of going out into the world and realising the kind of well-constructed suburb that I, I grew up in um, had a lot of problems socially and just, um, yeah, structurally. I didn't quite understand and it took me a long time to understand it because to me it kind of seemed all quite horrifying because I was the one growing up and going into it but in a razorhead this is kind of a fully grown man who's not really prepared for the situations he's created for himself um yeah that's really what I was thinking one more thing I do want to mention as well is Janet said about there's a lot of matter that doesn't really we're not really sure what it is and there's a lot of ambiguity about all these kind of gross substances and um it 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 quite amuses me because in a lot of lynch's paintings they're sort of constructed out of this kind of weird almost like um disgusting textures and on purpose he's never told anyone what he's used <laughs> to make these paintings and um Part of me thinks that's because it's so gross he can't even say what what it is, what the materials he's using is, because it really does look like fecal matter that he's sort of used to paint these horrifying images. Um, but yeah, that ambiguity almost makes it more horrifying because you're left sort of trying to depict what it is that's in front of you. All you know is just the product of something quite horrifying. Um, yeah, I think that's... That's all. <laughs> I mean, on on the topic of like substances in this film, like the like Janet mentioned it earlier, we see lots of earth sort of uh, in the wrong place. We have a, a a plant in both films. Actually, we have a plant without a plant pot uh, besides the bed, and on an, another sort of pile of earth and dirt on the dresser. And in um, grandmother as well, we have this enormous pile of earth placed onto the bed in which seeds are planted and from which a sort of pod develops that the grandmother is born from. Um, and when I was seeing all these sort of images of uh, sort of earth in the home, dirt sort of in the bedroom, it reminded me of this lecture that Stuart Hall gave on um, race as a floating signifier, a sort of analysis of how people construct classifications and how those boundaries are sort of well organized. Um, so I had a little, it took me a while to find it, but I did eventually find the quote. Um, so I've sort of prepared it here, but as you guys know, I'm dyslexic and I hate reading out loud uh, unless I've had a chance to rehearse. So uh, David, I've emailed you that, that quote. Do you mind reading it for us? Yeah, I can. I've got it ready here. Um, as many of you will know, I've, I'm a, a writer and a spoken word performer so I have absolutely no problem reading stuff out I love doing it <laughs> um, okay so uh, yeah this is the quote from Stuart Hall um, race the, the floating signifier um, so it goes like this what is of course important for us is when the systems of classification become the objects of the disposition of power that's to say, when the marking of difference and similarity across a human population becomes a reason why this group is to be treated in that way and get those advantages, and that group should be treated in another. An important point about classification is that it is a way of maintaining the order of any system, and what is most disturbing is anything that breaks that classification. Mary Douglas, the anthropologist, describes this in terms of what she calls matter out of place. She says every culture has a kind of order of classification built into it, and this seems to stabilize the culture. 
You know exactly where you are. You know who are the inferiors and who the superiors are and how each has a rank, etc. What disturbs you is what she calls matter out of place. What she means by that is you don't worry about dirt in the garden because it belongs in the garden. But the moment you see dirt in the bedroom, you have to do something about it because it doesn't symbolically belong there. And what you do with dirt in the bedroom is you cleanse it, you sweep it out, you restore the order, you police the boundaries, you know the hard and fixed boundaries between what belongs and what doesn't, inside slash outside, cultured slash uncivilized, barbarous and cultivated, and so on. End quote. Thanks, David. Uh, yeah, so that's from the Media Education Foundation, their sort of documentary they made with Stuart Hall in 1997, where essentially he just gives a lecture on this topic. But I think the reason it sprung to mind is obviously this visual metaphor that um, Stuart Hall and Mary Douglas sort of evoke of sort of dirt in the household. That's the initial connection. But, you know, tasked with the idea of thinking about these films through the sort of the lens of neurodiversity, I was just wanted to sort of propose this as a sort of mode of operation that Lynch is interested in disrupting these organized signifiers and how that may be a, a metaphor for sort of disrupting notions of new neuronormativity and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't have a clear argument here. I just have all these connections and I thought it'd be interesting to raise it with you guys. Yeah, I've come across that quote, matter out of place before, um, quite recently in some reading I was doing around the um, the trickster figure. So I, I, I'm always interested in um, narrative and uh, sort of, you know, common figures that you get in, in narratives. And one of the most interesting for me is the, the trickster. And the trickster is often referred to in these terms as, as being a, a sort of agent of of dealing with matter that's out of place because the trickster is a character is the type of character that sort of crosses boundaries and 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 puts things where they shouldn't be and uh, and that kind of thing and i do sort of see lynch in that way he's got a sort of tricksterish nature about him and he's he's um not afraid really to to do this to 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 put these kinds of bold pieces of 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 matter that shouldn't be in into different places and sort of create extremity with that and create sort of um, abjection and sort of disturbance with that, I think. So the, the one that always springs to mind for me is the ear in um, Blue Velvet when uh, uh, Cal McLaughlin's character finds the ear near the beginning of Blue Velvet and that sort of triggers the, ho the whole plot. And that there's this kind of zoom into this perfectly preserved severed ear, which has got horrible kind of bugs crawling all on it. On it. So yeah, there's some, what, what I found. What I find really interesting about the trickster is that I also associate autism and autistic people, in fact, and autistic characters when used properly, also as trickster figures because they can be, because of the nature of autism and the fact that autistic people are slightly sort of on the outside of society in some respects, or sort of cutting across it in other respects. Utilizing autism in such a an interesting narrative way can be a really powerful tricksterish element that then turns things on its head and the way in which autistic people see the world which is you know importantly different to the way in which non-autistic people see the world can then be utilized i think in our in in our narratives to throw up mirrors and to throw up signs to say everything isn't neat and tidy and neurotypical and correct and straight and normal. There is difference and difference gives us a kind of exciting narrative energy. And I get that from Lynch, definitely. And it was interesting, Georgie, that you bring Lynch in as a kind of person who sort of deals with this kind of neurodivergent or neuroqueer view on life, because it's really quite a powerful way, I think, of seeing his work um, and an interesting way. Thanks for that, David. I, I, I mean, I find, I find this really quite an interesting opportunity to think about this film in two ways, in the way that John James has mentioned that it's a, it could be read as a sort of um, a, a film that's about, the Razorhead as a film that's sort of eliminating difference, uh, something, you know, the, the baby that doesn't fit the world and is horrifying for everyone. And in the end, you know, the film sort of culminates around the killing of this baby. And then on the other hand, an idea of the film as a sort of lifting of 
normality from someone who can see through the pretense of the neurotypical world. So I think it, it holds both of those possibilities. Um, I mean, I don't quite know how this fits in, but I but I was also struck by the way in which Lynch is dealing with very Freudian themes of incest in both of these films. I, I was interested in the way in The Grandmother, it's actually cross-generational. It moves, sorry, not cross-generational, incest is cross-generational, but not the usual cross-generational with, with the desire for parents, uh, but desire between the grandmother and, and the grandson. And that seemed to be uh, uh, something that is Lynchian rather than Freudian that he might he might do that. And I I wondered whether he'd sort of skipped the 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 parental child situation to make it additionally horrifying. You know that we also have a bigger age gap. We have a lot about the grandmother's body in here, um, the way that he films her. We see her age. We see the lines on her face. Um, so she moves between these categories of being quite a comforting figure for him and then uh, moves into this position where you know, it's potentially something quite erotic between them when she, the sequence where she's winking at him and, um, and the, the music shifts. And it's a really kind of lovely, convivial moment in the film about two thirds of the way in and then I think does he freeze frame it on a kiss that's on the lips and you kind of think oh that, that went somewhere where I wasn't quite expecting it to go what did other people think about that sequence I mean for a while I was um trying to discern whether this was a literal grandmother part of the family or a sort of clear fantasy emerging from this seed that he's planted and I think maybe that distinction is important, maybe it's not, because I, I don't remember the grandmother actually interacting with the abusive parents. And so it's almost like a, you know, this child wishing for um, a sympathetic figure within the family and, and sort of wish fulfillment emerging um, in a sort of Jack and the Beanstalk kind of scenario. But um, yeah, I think, you know, the motivations on Lynch's part for entering into sort of um, incestuous obscenities, it, 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 I mean, it, to me, it seems sometimes just like a nasty little trick to sort of disturb viewers. But, I, you know, I, I, the way you hear Lynch talk about his work, he's, first of all, he's very resistant from explaining himself, but also you get this sense that that policy may be internalised as well. So he has these sort of images and he doesn't really want to understand why he's generating them. And it's a sort of strong surrealist tra tradition where you just put it all out there and maybe, maybe let other people make sense of it. You're, you're in your therapeutic dialogue with the audience, who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, is it important that there's a sort of distinction between this grandmother being a literal member of the family and this grandmother being a clear fantasy? And what are the, what, what are the consequences of that distinction? So that, that was what I was preoccupied with when trying to think about this. Um, I think, because obviously I'm, I'm quite new to, to Lynch, but what, what I got from these two films is that it's all about exposing the absurdity of everything going on of society. Um, and I did make a joke to my husband that watching a razor had made me made me feel more autistic because I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea why people were behaving this way. Um, and um, I think we've talked before about the autistic viewpoint as having the potential to challenge social norms or or to to sort of look outside of of what everyone else is just readily accepting or seeming to. And I think. For me, it was more successful in that this idea of challenging norms was more successful in the grandmother because we're seeing it from the, the point of view primarily of, of the transgressor. So um, so the parents almost in the grandmother are, are almost dog-like. They're barking, they're, they're running around on all fours, but they're also using sort of almost like historical dog training methods, like rubbing the boy's face 
in the urine like I, I don't advise anyone does that to their dog but I know it has happened in the past and it, it, it kind of reminded me a bit of if we're thinking of this from an autistic lens it, it came up as reminding me of ABA and how it's effectively dog training for for autistic children and also I, I I can relate to what Georgia said about the sort of everyday body horror of like just being alive. Um, and once you start thinking about it, it's quite horrific. And I think about um, this scene in a Star Trek Voyager episode where the doctor who is a hologram meets another hologram who despises um, biological creatures. And he starts describing the process of, of you know, chewing food and, and forcing it down your your throat. And it, I saw that as a, teen, a young teenager and it really stuck with me how, yeah, it is pretty disgusting to be a, a biological creature. But then in, in, in recent years, I've started sort of almost becoming fascinated with the, the horror of it and, you know, sort of like soil and, and worms and, and decomposition is is quite it's quite fascinating to explore that and makes me think of sort of Yayo Kusama how she kept repeating what what horrified her until she felt obliterated with her infinity nets and she had rooms full of phallic objects and also it reminds me of that scene from Antichrist sorry I'm bringing up a lot of other films but the Lars von Trier film where I don't think she has a name but the the woman, the mother character, she's she's sort of scared of nature or she has anxiety and she lies on the grass and she completely melts into the gr- grass and it's kind of like this this surrendering to the to the lack of boundaries between different substances. That's what just came to mind as we were discussing it. So in a way, it sort of connects back to the matter out of place idea. I was. I asked David to sort of expand upon earlier, Um, you know, like as humans, we're sort of constantly, um, societally, we're reinforcing this idea of a separation between us and nature and a separation that is in many ways artificial. Um, But yeah, it's funny when you, sort of catch your body doing things unexpected and feeling very fleshy and and realizing the lack of distinction between you and the meat on the in the supermarkets and i think yeah lynch is very 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 good at disrupting those boundaries and and offering a sort of a wry look at these um sort of fleshy uh, similarities yeah i i really like the uh that quote and the the whole um, matter of place idea I think especially because like when, when you're a child growing up and you're you're trying to figure out, you know, what goes where and what are the rules of the household or what are the socially constructed rules, you know, you might like put a sticker on a wall and then someone says, no, don't put that there. You know, it doesn't look nice because um, it doesn't belong there. And you're still, still thinking, but it looks nice. You know, why, why doesn't it belong there? And you don't realize maybe it leaves a stain or it leaves stays there forever. But I don't think I ever really grew out of those challenges. Like I'm always still thinking, you know, why why are things like this? Why is society constructed in this way? Why am I expected to be a certain way? And I, I do feel that, especially when I um, have sort of family meetings, because uh, I do come from a very like suburban tradition where everyone kind of grows up there, works there and dies there. And I was really the first one to kind of just go somewhere else <laughs> to move to London so every time I go back it, it it feels like I'm being sort of boxed back into a sort of set of rules like stringent policies about how you know what career you should have um how you should act around people how you should sit at the dinner table how you should eat what you should eat and I, I feel especially when I was going through puberty as everyone does, I felt, you know, a real, like, um, visceral um, objection to these sort of um, rules. And I just saw everything as sort of absurd. And then it kind of grew into something grotesque that I couldn't really 
um, understand and cope with. And it's never, it's not really something that's gone away. I, I find myself constantly encountering things that I don't understand, um, the things that to me don't belong there. But if I were to reverse it, I'd, I'd think that my my own perception of things is, does not belong um, where other people think it should. Um, and it's this sort of these sort of levels of perception um, which sort of clash with each other and these just different rules that I feel as autistic people were constantly trying to figure out things that don't belong in a certain place that we think, you know, you know, we all come from biological matter and, but anything natural, like, like the soil is just not, you know, no soil is supposed to be in the house. If a cat brings a rat in from outside, you know, doesn't belong there because, you know, it's a rat. The cat is told off for bringing all these things into the house. And then the objection to that is just so horrifying. So that's really, I think that's why I connect with it so well, because it, it does make you really uncomfortable to see how horrifying the world can be once you sort of expose those layers. I, I agree with that. As someone who also came from suburbia, there's something just endlessly appealing about David Lynch's take on uh, the on, on suburban life and the, the 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 veneer, the ridiculous veneer of of, of its uh, of its front all of the time with rules and regulations that are ridiculous. Um, and I, one of the scenes I like a lot in Eraserhead where that happens is, is the meal scene. And we've, we've touched on that already, but the way in which that, that little bird, whatever it is, it's like tiny chicken or something that it it's meant to be cooked. And, and in that process that, you know, again, that anthropological concept, I think from Levi Strauss about, you know, things that are raw aren't food, but things that are cooked are that it's okay to kill an animal and eat it. You know, and that, but what Lynch shows you is actually it's still an animal because it bleeds on the plate. So that boundary completely gets broken down and is horrifying. Um, I, but I wondered about your your reading of of the figure of Henry himself because he his styling of the film. I absolutely loved his hair. The moment I saw this film, his hair was one of the main points of kind of identification and you know, fellow feelings like that. He wanders through the world in this way in which he looks constantly shocked, like a bit like a cartoon character, a bit like he's, you know, got his finger in an electrical socket. His hair is just standing up. And he seems to, he seems to walk in a very particular way as well that mimics sort of early cinemas, sort of frame rate shifting. You know, he seems a bit, a bit sort of fast as he's walking across some of those industrial landscapes. Um, maybe the frame rate has changed as well. But I, his, his sort of continual sort of frowning perplexity about the world seemed really appealing to me and very reminiscent of early cinema. And of course, it is it's a black and white film. The settings are quite minimal. You know, we get that sort of black backdrop that you often got with a, a Melier film, for example. Um, and we get that in The Grandmother as well, that there aren't really sort of staged scenarios. They're just sort of figures working against a black backdrop. I wonder if it felt kind of theatrical to anyone else or sort of, sort of you know, what that aesthetic seemed like. We do have this uh, sort of reoccurring motif of the fantasy theatre stage, um, which is, it sort of pops up in Mulholland Drive as well. Um, and that clearly has some sort of resonance with Lynch as a sort of dreamscape, a, a sort of a vehicle for fantasy. Um, so, uh, yeah, theatricality is clearly like his go-to, okay, we're going to do imagination now. This, uh, this theater in the, in, in the radiator with a, I mean, this, this woman has, uh, her singing really struck me as quite odd for a second. I thought it was Lynch himself actually doing the voice, but it, but it did, I looked at the credits and it, and it was, a, there was a male name, uh, described as, as actually doing the singing that was adjusted and applied to this female actress so it's all everything about it was sort of attempting to sort of disrupt and you know I guess the more I think about Lynch the more I see him as this sort of semiotic anarchist someone a, a sort of a shuffler of 
symbols and connections and and it seems to be this this theme that emerges over and over again and maybe the the challenge is to not fall into the trap of trying to organize each of these symbols to uncover the code of what they really mean it's to think about the way that everything is coded and and already arranged so rigidly um maybe that's what he helps us do yeah i i, I agree and i really like that that sort of theater sequence is it's very strange it reminds me of I don't know, there's a bit, something very Dada about it, something very uh, Samuel Beckett about it. There's something very Artaud, Theatre of Cruelty about it as well. And, and and that's kind of a lot of the things that it reminds me of. But I also think that, you know, following on from what Janet said, um, the, the sort of general aesthetic of it, it reminds me a lot of uh, expressionist uh, horror, sort of early German expressionist horror as well. There's, you know, the kind of chiaroscuro of the black and white, but also some exaggerated shadows and um, gestures and the, even the kind of, the, yeah, the, the movement, I guess, of Henry a little bit. Um, but also, in, and I think as, in addition to this, one of the things that really struck me uh, that that about both the Razor Hada and the grandmother that ties to... Um, autism and the autistic way of being in the world was the sound uh, and the sound, the soundtrack, the score as such, and the, the sound effects, um, which you briefly mentioned actually in your introduction, Georgia, but I think it's worth sort of dwelling on them a little bit further because it, it really feels to me, especially in the razor head, it feels to me like Henry is very aware of the sounds around him constantly, you know, clanking of pipes and the industrial sounds of the factory that he works in and the, 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 the radiator in his room and just everything and anything that's kind of making a sound. Even um, the one that really struck me was even when he's, he's lying with his wife in bed and she starts rubbing her eye and you just get this kind of like clicky kind of wet sort of eye rubbing sound, uh, which is horrible. And, you know, and, and as we know, a, a lot of autistic people, um, and I include my, my own sister in this, uh, you know, report, say that they, they experience sound in a very intense way um, and can, you know, can sort of pick out specific sounds or get overwhelmed by the mass of sounds. And that's sort of, that's I think that's really clear, particularly in a razor head, that's really clear because it's just, there's a very clanky, noisy um film uh and then the other the other part of this was in the grandmother when the grandmother starts whistling and uh so she sort of she's got this really very long whistle which then culminates in her death um and the 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 child in in the grandmother is panicking because he's sort of running and he's trying to get his parents to come and help because he thinks there's something wrong with his with his with his grandmother and again that sound was so piercing it was so piercing i had to turn the volume down on my on my laptop whilst i was watching it because i was like this is this is kind of horrible and i thought that was a really interesting way of um of representing that sort of uh kind of connection to uh sound and to kind of and to light and to kind of um the sensory environment that can be so intense uh for the autistic experience and it felt to me like, you know, if if anyone has ever like, oh, what do you mean that, that autistic people find, you know, find the sensory environment difficult? I don't understand what you mean by that. I would say, well, well, watch a razor head and you kind of get a sense of it because it's just so clangy. It's so noisy. It's so intense. And I feel like that possibly was quite a good representation of of that side of of things, um, the sensory overload. And I think that probably applies to the to the lights as well, and because there's a lot of like looking at light as well in this film as well. Um, yeah, there's a there's a bit specifically in a Razorhead that um, I remember watching the first time and thinking, "Oh God, this is me." <laughs> and it's um, when he's in um, Mary's house with her parents, and the dad is sort of talking really loudly about I think about the chicken and just having a normal conversation, and you just hear this overwhelming like droning sound or like sounds of the factory and it just sounds so um guttural like it, it made me feel quite um seen I guess just because sometimes I feel find myself in just a normal situation or trying to hold a conversation and there's just so many sounds going on that it feels like there's no way that this person is talking and not realizing that there's so many sounds going on how are they continuing this conversation it's like yeah I'm, I'm really not sure how 
I mean, I, I guess the experience is probably different for everyone. But yeah, I'm not really sure how <laughs> Lynch does it in a way that works so well, especially from my experience with autism. Yeah, it, it just feels like like a like we've said before, a disruption of normalcy, but in a way that is just so uh, you can't really ignore it, and it's uh, it's stressful, especially the sound in the grandmother. That there's a one that keeps cropping up that's kind of like this moaning drawling moaning sound that sounds like somewhat like a low-pitched wail like a wailing sound that just keeps cropping up and it's just it's so like tormenting it sounds like like a like a pitched down animal dying which yeah again is very horrifying but um I have a tendency as well to hear a sound that's bothering me and apply a sort of anthropomorphism to it you know, because it is so terrible, I sort of compare it to something that I can relate to more or something that is visually horrifying. But um, yeah, the also the the dissonance between sometimes between the sound and the um, the visuals, especially when you mentioned the the eye rubbing, the squelching of it, it's really jarring. And yeah, just just takes something quite normal and makes it just horrible to look at yeah when you were mentioning the anthropomorphic georgia it made me think of that that scene with when the grandmother whistles and at the end it just goes on and on and on it just reminded me of of a kettle on a stove you know that's just it's just screaming the screaming sound like an alarm and then and then she expires i think doesn't she she's sort of that's that's the end of her and in the end she's sort of this this human body seems more like a mechanical object than than a, a, a human figure. And I think he's, I, I, I think the way he uses sounds is very, very clever in that way. It can, even the sound design can make the image, uh, you know, can make an object within the image transform into something else. Yeah, but I, I just wanted to ask Alex, you, Alex, you seem to find Lynch a little tiresome in terms of surrealism. And I just wanted to push you a little bit more on that. From my point of view, I often think about teaching surrealist films and, and there seem to be very few of them. And I think Lynch is, is someone who does it very well. Um, other than Bumwell and a little bit of Maya Darren, there's not a lot to work with, I think, in terms of surrealism and the history of film compared to a, quite a lot of other crossovers with, with movements. Yeah, so I just wondered... Is there something irritating about that for you? Yeah, I think there is. Yeah, um, you know, I was <laughs> maybe it's just prejudice. I mean, I remember in my GCSEs doing um, sort of studying art, and you know, we'd 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 think that we were sort of being critical and engaging, and and like by A level, we were like, oh, you know, that's just your basic surrealism. And by the time we got to undergraduate, we were like, oh, well, it's just your basic postmodernism, really. And, and it just seemed to be this part of the, this incremental stage of sophistication in my own understanding of, of sort of art movements. But it was very, very early on in this run. So I, I look back on it with a little bit of, um, I don't know, embarrassment of my interests in like Dali. And I look back at it right now as a sort of, 34 year old and I just see it as boyish boyish nonsense you know pubescent um sort of splurtings it was just I don't know it, it doesn't appeal to me at all anymore um but I think the aspect of it that has become interesting again is is the more sort of semiotic disruption providing insights into how we're organizing our thoughts around imagery and iconography and and narrative I think that 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 still has some resonance with me you know this is not a pipe is quite an interesting image and statement um so you know I'm, I'm sure you guys aren't too interested in my opinions about surrealism but I think you know it on the surface it can just seem like a sort of a bit of a spectacle for a spectacle's sake. And, I, and I'm not always convinced that they're truly interested in unconscious activity. In fact, they seem often quite resistant 
these filmmakers and artists to actually applying any meaningful analysis to what they discover through their own images or you know like it, like I, I find it frustrating that Lynch doesn't actually want to talk about his films or what they mean or or how he constructed them and and you know but but at the same time I'm I'm, I'm very interested in the unconscious activity of at work in the generation of imagery and filmmaking. So yeah, it's, it's, there's a little bit of a tension in me, but I think it probably relates to uh, my own biases about my own education. I'm, I'm just thinking as you're speaking there about whether, whether what is irritating about Lynch is then that he is uncovering societal norms, but they might, not be very comfortable uncovering. So I'm thinking about John James. Your again, your your point about the baby uh, and its you know its difference being eliminated. I think there's something similar in this film about and, and most of Lynch's films about about women. Um, women are you know either heavily sexualized or maternal, um, and they just kind of sit in this divide and and. And you know, there's very there's a lot written about this, far more than there is about um, potentially ableist readings. But I wonder if that's part of what you're saying, Alex, the sort of suggestion that just revealing certain norms and then leaving them floating is not always that satisfying. Yeah, I just I sometimes get this like it felt very much about this 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 narrative of a razorhead was about sort of alienation and, and sort of ways of manifesting an idea of alienation. But then we create this sort of hyper-victimized character of the baby or Lynch creates it at the end. And then the alienation is just passed on to him and, and it's manifested in extreme violence and murder. And I just, it, like, there's no, <laughs> I guess I want a little bit of morality enough for me to sort of uh, think, okay, well maybe I can, engage with this and not just think of it as a sort of stream of disruption. Um, as, I don't know, I, I just made me, it upset me too much, this idea of killing the baby. I don't know, it undermined it for me. But I, I, maybe it's my own normative sort of moralities that I'm grappling with and Lynch is quite interested in putting me in that uncomfortable position. I really understand that point because I've had debates with people um, about film and I've been pointed out because of my hypocrisy because I often like critique these kind of big I mean I'm the sort of age where I can do this now <laughs> I critique these kind of big auteurs for example like Nolan for kind of doing all these kind of complex things and saying well I don't have to explain it you're gonna have to work it out and I'm just like part of me just is just like th that just seems kind of lazy uh, and then then people will say yeah but you like Lynch <laughs> So why why isn't this the same thing? Um, <laughs> I've had some time to think about it because I, I I was kind of taken aback by that. I was like, that's true. That's a bit hypocritical. But I think it's because I see some kind of honesty with Lynch that I don't really see in a lot of filmmakers. Because um, I, I mean, I guess you know each has their own have their own thing and their own way of doing it. But the fact that I mean that I know that there's not too much um, conceptual or meaningful thought going into what is created because of the film or what um, these signs and images mean. It feels very authentic to Lynch and to his uh, consciousness, if that you know would make any sense. It's like I always struggle with film because I wish I could just vomit everything I think onto like out outside onto the camera and then it's just there and my whole messy consciousness is just there and I struggle with getting that out into a kind of structured production environment because it's so impossible to put all these threads and complexities in front of me in a way that reflects how I see the world in a perfect way. That's kind of my continuing odyssey with filmmaking, trying to reflect myself honestly. Um, and I feel like Lynch doesn't really try too hard to do that. And to me, that's why, how it works. It feels, yeah, like a lot of the time there's, it's, you know, oh, I'll, I'll do this one thing. I'll kill the baby. <laughs> I'll have this woman on a stage singing and then she hugs him at the end and it doesn't really seem to have, I've read so many people trying to make a meaning out of that and I don't really think there is one. 
um, which yeah is I agree is frustrating and yeah a bit pretentious but there's like an authenticity to it I think if that is something that comes to you in a dream one thing that Lynch says a lot now that I always think about that it's, it's kind of become a huge thing for my creative process is the idea of fishing for ideas because uh, he's a big proponent of, of like meditation and transcendental meditation and once you get into a state of that sort of clear consciousness you can cast out a fishing net in your head and wait for an idea to come and it doesn't have to be fully structured and thought out it just exists there in your brain and once you catch it you know the the, the, the longer you kind of stay in that honest clear mindset you can catch a bigger fish or you can catch a more expensive fish a more a beautiful fish and for him that's where his ideas and his visuals come from of just this pure consciousness which yes does sound very pretentious and um as like a, a film student I, I I do fall into the trap of hearing someone say something like this and go that sounds like a good idea I'm gonna do that and it's just sometimes it can be like a bunch of nonsense but I do I do feel that uh, in this case it it is more f- from a more subconscious place that and that he's managing to manifest physically that's just the way that I've always seen it but I could be I could be naive in that as well I think that's lovely and I think that's probably a lovely place to end things uh so thank you very much so we'll draw that uh, we'll draw this uh, episode to an end uh so thank you Janet thank you Georgia thank you John James and thank you Alex um and we'll be back again soon with another episode you have been listening to the autism through cinema podcast hosted by Georgia Bradburn, John James Laidlow, Alex Whittleson, Janet Harbord, and David Hartley. Thanks also to our shiny new editor, audio wizard, Leverett Jakes. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.